I will say that the son got the short end of that straw. Like it, it seemed that the father really didn't care much for the son, which I was a little kind of ambivalent towards, but the relationship between the dad and his daughter was beautiful. Do we really drive cars or are cars driving us? That's deep, man. What's that? What, what are you talking about? The Matthew McConaughey, like Lincoln car commercials. I, I don't know if it's Lincoln or Lexus or something, but I've never he, seen this. He did like, oh my God, you need to go look at a compilation because they're the best. Okay, so why didn't you like Interstellar? I just didn't care for it. I didn't care. I I never cared. Wow, so that's not even any qualifications an or anything. That's, that's just a yeah, no, it it I didn't like it because it sucked, man. It's you, been too long. Me. Matt Damon has a fat face. Um, <laughs> wow, I uh, won't deny that, but like a, he wasn't even a main he's, character. He's, he was like some tertiary person that was like, oh, let's rescue him. Up, oh, turns out he's dead. He's okay, so much he's, cooler as Jason I, Bourne and. Not eh, I've never been a huge fan of the Jason Bourne movies. I've seen a few of them. Eh, okay, now that's something that I will actually argue. Wait, really? You're going to defend Jason Bourne, but not Interstellar? I just... I I don't care. Space. Oh my god, my corn. Oh no. Dust storms. And now I'm going to go into... Humanity uh, facing its existential death and... Now I'm going to go into it. my neat hypercube and float around and shake bookshelves. Like, wow. Amazing. Amazeballs. Um, it's a tesseract, technically. Yeah, Although hypercube a- is also another way of describing that too. Yeah, you know, going back to the the Born series, um, I enjoyed those movies, but the issue is, I think I told you guys, I'm face blind, and so watching those movies, which is basically a bunch of white men shooting guns at each other in really fast paces, all dressed exactly the same. I, I literally this had, about you. I, I literally could not figure out what was going on in any of the four movies. Prosopagnosia. Wow. So, so the first three are good. It ends very well with three. The fourth one is garbage. Didn't see the fourth one. Jeremy Renner can't save it. And then the fifth one is 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 solid okay. And it's just cool because it's like old school spy versus all these young kids who are like, ooh, look at all my cool technology. And then Jason Bourne just shoots them in the head and is like, ha. That's the one yeah. where there was some sort of hackage that happened yeah. and Jason yeah. Bourne shows up in Greece and shoots everyone. Uh, and someone yeah. gets hit with a sniper rifle, yeah. and it's just like, "Hey, let me die." Okay, yeah, I remember that one. That was, yeah. I, I think that's correct. It was solid. Okay. I mean, I just like that it basically happened at PAX East or something. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, let's let's consider the the show started there. Um, I'm sure we'll find a good uh, outtake or intro thing later on because we tend to say funny things. Um, but uh, do we? He- uh, oh, we say the most funny things. You do, at least, Sam. <laughs> yeah, we just kind of ride off your coattails. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, welcome to yet another episode of uh, the problem with Interstellar. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. There is no problem with Interstellar. And I'm Sam. And Sam doesn't have an opinion. <laughs> I saw the movie once, like, five years ago. I don't actually remember it too well. Like, which may be a sign it wasn't very good. I remember it being really cool. That's exactly a sign that Thank it you. wasn't very good. Okay, think an organist who is has a gun pointed to their head and is saying, play as much as possible, as fast as possible. And that is... That is interstellar, at least as far as the sound is concerned. And it's that's excellent. A, that's a striking image. Um, but you know what else is a striking image? Uh, non sequiturs. Nice. Sam, what are you drinking right now? Oh, oh. 
God, I'm not drinking anything. I just I just ran down Queen Anne Hill, um, and I uh, I don't have a drink at all. You're 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 just drinking in the moment. I am. I'm, mm, I'm just enjoying deep. your guys' presence and uh, the arguments that are to follow. So, mm. Mm-hmm. yeah. How about you, Stephen? Well, unfortunately, I was drinking something, and now I'm out. I had a, a can of sparkling water, and uh, yeah, I'm out of sparkling water, so I'm just kind of pantomiming drinking. So, unfortunately, that's kind of vote for two for as far as the drinks are concerned. We are not off to a good start today. Yeah, this really this no, is no. rough. Yeah, we have some people yeah. bashing Interstellar. We don't have drinks. It's it's a rough. What are you drinking? <laughs> um uh so what i'm drinking is just some low-grade lager it's nothing significant but what i'm drinking out of is more fun um it's a tiny little sam adams glass that when you go do the tour at the brewery they give you this little tasting glass yes yes they do and adorable and it will always have good memories attached to it until i most likely drop it down the drain and then run the garbage disposal and break it which <laughs> hasn't happened before Wait, um, I'm, I'm curious on that so you would drop it and then you would run the garbage disposal wouldn't you drop it and then try to fish it out while carefully staying away from the garbage disposal no no, no. so so this is i i had a this actually has happened before <laughs> what not with a glass but with a shot glass it it slipped down the garbage disposal and i didn't notice it and i ran the uh, garbage disposal and shattered it and just filled a garbage oh, disposal. like a, a garbage disposal filled with shards of glass can you imagine anything worse than that to stick your hand into and work <laughs> honestly so. can't like that's awful that's, that's straight <laughs> horror movie right there it is it is it's uh it's uh it's in the next movie of saw actually they uh i imagine so those the quality masterpieces mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah i mean speaking you know if you want to put a tear every saw movie and then after it interstellar wow, <laughs> wow. I haven't seen the Saw movies. Yeah, um, neither have I. But I can only assume they have a less frantic and uh, myopic soundtrack. Um, so, Sam, Whoa. how about we talk What's about... What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't really have an anime Interstellar. It's just funny. Um, uh, Sam, I believe yeah. you had a very interesting article this week. Uh, why don't you uh, t- tell us a little bit about it? I did. I'll tell you about 15 minutes about it. Um... It's um it was a good article. It was about kind of a pet peeve of mine, and this will probably become my rant too. The article is called Creating Conservative Universities is Not the Answer by Alan Jacobs, a professor of humanities at Baylor University. Really funny is at the end of the article there was a little disclaimer. This article is actually sponsored by the Charles Koch Foundation, which me and Brevin are a little bit familiar with. It's a badge of honor. So it it might be. We I don't know. <laughs> um but basically, the article goes through. It starts off with the very controversial premise that academics lean left. <laughs> and it kind of goes through some of the studies that show that, yeah, the, the academy is left-leaning. It's fine. And it talks about how just pointing that fact out can land you in trouble, which actually I kind of got on a little tangent and read the story that they were referencing with uh, Samuel J. Abrams of Sarah Lawrence College. Did you guys hear about the situation? No, I didn't. No, I yeah. didn't hear about it, but I did notice that the article constantly referenced Sarah Lawrence. Con- well, yeah, because it was because of this this um this situation where this professor, Dr. Um, Abrams, he basically wrote a New York Times op-ed publishing some survey results that were done, which basically like surveyed a bunch of college professors and concluded that, yeah, there's a little bit of progressive bias on campus. He then, because he published that through the New York Times, the diaspora coalition at his school protested 
him personally. The Diaspora the Coalition? They were called the, the Diaspora Coalition and requested that he be put under tenure review by a panel of their members. These are students, by the way, on campus. A panel of their members put him under tenure review because he wrote this New York Times op-ed. Yeah, so that was kind of an example. But then they, and as of now, like not much is happening with that situation. Like there have been some petitions on campus signed by different faculty members for freedom of speech, which was like, they got like 20 people to sign that. And then like some demands from the, the from the diaspora coalition which caused or which had like 40 signatures so does that not seem like a very orwellian name kind of the diaspora coalition but i guess most names are probably orwellian if you think about it too hard yeah i mean the intercollegiate studies institute yeah fair yeah it sounds orwellian right there intercollegiate yeah. yeah what college are we talking about the inter one the intercollegiate mm. so you know i don't know but I think they're referring to the African diaspora, maybe? I don't know. Probably. Um, But anyway, back to the original article. Basically, he looks at one solution to this problem that's been proposed by Frederick Hess and Brandon, or Brendan Bell, which is basically to make a new university. And you're going to notice throughout this article, he references lots of different people. Like, basically, entire articles just like saying these different people made different arguments. But um, the solution that Hess and Bell had is to make a university where they would, quote, explore questions and subjects that don't fit the progressive orthodoxy. So basically trying to free themselves from, from the progressive orthodoxy and not necessarily enforcing a conservative one, but serving as like an incubator, not a sanctuary for conservatism. So that's one perspective. Um, they kind of released a big article in, I think, National Affairs, which is where they got notoriety. But then the author goes on and talks about uh, Warren Treadgold, who is also kind of on the side of wanting a new university, uh, one that has, quote, is traditional in character, but not specifically conservative in politics. However, it kind of digresses to where he is calling that they hire the right people, and if done correct, correctly, it will combat this laundry list of progressive ideas like feminism and racial studies and stuff like that. And basically, the author, um, Jacobs, makes this observation that all these movements are defined by what they oppose. It talks about Peter Wood, how basically what Wood says is that the forces of like a progressive move can't be eliminated simply by just not giving them a spot in the curriculum, just kicking them out of the curriculum, because they're going to pop up somewhere if you have a free-thinking university, and so therefore you have to actively oppose them. Root and branch. So the new university would fundamentally compromise its liberal arts values from the beginning if it wanted to actually be this new university. So kind of this weird catch-22 thing. Uh, Jacobs tries to get out of this by basically saying our solution is conceptual adjustments, that basically we need to readjust what we mean by freedom and openness. And he uses an argument that Stanley Fish made where basically like in the, the sectarian school versus the non-ideological schools, they're just differently closed. There's not like one school that's closed to ideas and another school that's open to ideas. They're just closed in different ways. The secular schools are closed to religious ideas. The religious schools are closed to secular ideas. He says there's not a problem here, is that academic freedom is always going to be constrained, that depending on what the different laws are, depending on what state you're in or what country you're in, uh, depending on the discipline standards and like what a discipline accepts as legitimate and not, and what different universities' missions are, um, those will influence the, the 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 constraints that are placed on thought. And so, therefore, mission commitments should be used to actually guide universities, and universities should be upfront about those commitments. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. So that's Fish's argument. Uh, Jacobs does look at the one 
issue to this, which is that when you, you know, is that if, if your university is defined by a certain creed, what happens when people defy that creed? His examples are like, what happens if somebody hired a free market to teach free market economics, reads Thomas Piketty and becomes a socialist? Or what happens when there's a professor at a Christian colleges who loses faith in Jesus? Or somebody who's teaching social justice and then reads Atlas Shrugged. I'm not sure how Ayn Rand is actually going to open your eyes to anything major. That's that's one argument, or that, that's one concern, is that people change in their viewpoints. Basically, Jacobs, I, I enjoyed the, argument, the article up to this point where he's kind of analyzing all these different perspectives, but then he really kind of lands flat on his face where he's basically like, academic freedom is really just a red herring, and basically what we need to talk about is just intellectual diversity, that if we can kind of prioritize intellectual diversity and have mission statements and hold by those missions, then we'll be okay. But the conservative breaking off is just going to make the problem worse. So he's basically just like status quo. Basically status quo, except he's like calling for like a deep cultural shift. So impossible status quo. Wow. What a nuanced argument. Things need to stay the same, except everything needs to change. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think he critiques a lot of the viewpoints that are expressed right now pretty well is like the Christian groups who are like, who, like, especially in elementary and like middle school education, who are like, you know, they can't be learning about evolution. They can't be learning secular things. Is he's like, you know, you're just calling to do the exact same th- thing that you're protesting against, which is closed, um, closed mindedness. But it's difficult to fix as he proves. So there's my pessimistic article. What do you guys think? With you, I'm not exactly sure how anybody would be convinced by Ayn Rand's books, but I mean, <laughs> I guess hypothetically it could happen, maybe. I mean, this is a question like, has anyone actually read her books? Yeah, I read Fountainhead. I have a copy of Atlas Shrugged on my shelf. I read two pages. Just having a copy of a book on your shelf does not mean you read it. I know it doesn't mean anything. I, I, I've intended to read it only because apparently my father is a huge fan of Ayn Rand. Oh, that's he interesting. He's, he's an architect. And so he read um, Fountainhead, which is Fountainhead, about an architect. Yeah. So, 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 guys, like you guys are criticizing Anne Rand, and you know, like she deserves some criticisms. But have you guys considered um, trains, though? <laughs> <laughs> no, you got me. You got me. I my eyes have been opened. I... Yeah. Okay. Okay. Actually, but actually, but, but for real though, my my favorite part of of uh, the article that Sam uh, chose is a quote from the from one of the people that the author is critiquing, who's calling for you know sort of a sectarian conservative university to be a bastion with which to fight all of the evil libs. Um, and uh, the line was just, "What is needed is an ivory tower of our own," and that image <laughs> just evokes like. Wizard duels, like there's the Black mm-hmm. Tower and the Silver Tower, and they dispatch their acolytes to do battle in the holy ritual of public opinion to the death. The one who gets more comments versus retweets, whoever has the lower ratio is executed immediately. Like, <laughs> it's great. Um, um, and, I mean, we kind of have that to an extent. Like, Hillsdale exists. Um, yeah. And that's granted, that's one university. It's a little tricky but- to get in. It is a little tricky to get in, <laughs> as you <laughs> as you know all too well. Um, but uh, and for uh, the record of our listeners, I did not try to get into Hillsdale, but that's another story. Regardless, um, so the contestation, like trying to figure out a way, how do you deal with progressive orthodoxy or bias in higher education? And what the what Jacobs notes 
and appreciates is the same thing or is is what the people who are proposing the conservative university also note in that it's not necessarily an explicit project although in the case of Sarah Lawrence it was somewhat explicit but it, it's it's not an explicit project of let's not allow any conservatives in or, or or let's not allow any dissenting opinions in it's that when you have a faculty that somehow has reached 28 to 1 uh, conservative or sorry liberal to conservative in New England for example one if you're a conservative you're just never going to try or even if you do try you know you're you're not a part of the of the clique so you just don't have a chance to to get in but despite this i i i i think there are some current projects that not necessarily solve the problem but definitely are help combat it in a less dramatic way than establishing you know the the order of the elephant university or whatever where you you know you you have like heterodox academy which is you know a whole bunch of profs all across the country all signing on to support freedom of speech and to go into subjects that are sometimes avoided just because of sort of the negative tinge of it. You have a lot more public thinkers. You can think Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, etc., who are reaching huge audiences in the form of podcasts and just long-form discussion that hasn't existed. And I think mm-hmm. in at least in part, there's there's been an, a natural response. And you can even talk about think tanks and, and the state policy network. Sorry, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ranting on here. No, this is interesting. There already is sort of a natural response to it. And it's not perfect. And, you know, obviously parity or more balance would be preferable, especially as long as college is kind of a rite of passage to get into the to the market. But I don't know. I, 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 I think there are some things that have already manifested that mitigate, if not solve, or provide alternative routes to this to this issue. So you don't think it's getting worse is what you're saying? I have no idea. I, I went through undergrad once and I haven't looked at any sort of overall s- studies of it. I would guess it there's high potential for it to get worse as the current generation of sort of older professors starts to retire. I can only imagine with the ratios being what they are now, they aren't going to get any better. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that as someone still in the undergrad, undergrad it's getting worse. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> That's the impression I've gotten as well. And it seems that a lot of the kind of alternatives that you've offered, while interesting, and you can certainly acquire a goodly bit of knowledge and whatnot from pod- podcasts and alternative um, methods of this, these aren't nearly as prestigious and don't have a history that the public university, or not the public university, but just the university does. If if I If I say, you know, like I just graduated from Harvard and you say, well, I just listened to a bunch of podcasts. Honestly, truth be told, we may have the exact same set of information, but people are just going to respect the Harvard grad more. Like that, That's just simply how it is. And so I see these alternatives as maybe a good start, but certainly not enough to combat that tide. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll just give a brief optimistic um, view of things. And, and the brief optimistic view is, yes, I agree with your statement. However, the power of a liberal arts education as from an elite university in particular, or even in general, as a useful thing in the market has potential to suddenly decrease in value. This is sort yes. of channeling Kaplan here. Here, Sam, I'll let you take that. Yeah. Um, wait, how, how do you know Kaplan? Because I know about him and I read, what's his face? Tyler Cohen's blog. Oh, I saw him debate in, in November. I know you did. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Kaplan. I mean, he's uh, let's see here. 
So yeah, so Kaplan, basically his argument is that the liberal arts degree is useless on the marketplace and no one cares about it. And he has a ton of different reasons for that. It's basically like people who go to a liberal arts at school, like their salaries are no different, if not lower. Liberal arts education is way more expensive. And like you can learn all those skills outside of school if you wanted to, but nobody chooses to. And so therefore it's kind of like this like weird culty almost environment where you're you know, you go to your liberal arts school and you just want to, you know, free think and read philosophy and stuff, but that's not really what your desires are and what's going to actually help you on the marketplace. And so he thinks that it's going to fade out very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that the market will adjust to realize that the value of it as it is, as it is valued now as a marketable thing will or has the potential to suddenly decrease. And that's not to say that liberal arts education in the platonic sense is not valuable. I would say it's probably the most valuable thing, but a, a liberal arts certification, let's say, is not the same thing. Yeah, I would I would certainly uh, say uh, this is water, Dave Foster Wallace's uh, speech. Um, <laughs> we, well, of course you well, are. I'm going to bring up Dave Foster Wallace. Yeah, because it, he, he in this, his entire thesis was the liberal arts education, the liberal arts project is about learning how to think and learning how to live beyond kind of what the market has demanded of us um that yes the the market does not have a value for these things such as philosophy literature art etc but there is a value to these things because it in his mind it was about survival it was about survival in a world that the liberal arts are not valued um or at least somewhat related yeah and the thing about kaplan he's his response to that, which is that's an argument that, the, that the, his opponent made, his response is he just goes like, "Prove it, prove it to me. Give me some kind of number that shows outcome differences or shows something different." The other debater, I mean, she, I think she did a good job at sidestepping it. I don't remember how she sidestepped it, but she did. And I wish I could have seen how that went because I got drinks with Kaplan afterwards, or he was drinking, I was drinking water because I was twenty at the time, um, and he was he was utterly uninterested in discussion. He was focused on his martini, and he was not interested in talking at all. It's an old man sitting next to me, making love to his, his tonic and gin. Yeah, that was him. And uh, <laughs> I said, what and a like, sad, and sad then, man. And then we started, like, there were a couple of professors who were, like, pushing back against his arguments, and so he just got up and left. Seriously? Wow. Yeah. That's a... Uh... That's that is a, the sign of somebody who hasn't been educated by liberal arts and doesn't understand that this is water. Word. He probably watched too much TV. Hey, Stephen, hey. I believe you have an article. <laughs> <laughs> yes, wow. I do. But <laughs> I, as always, I am uh, preaching the gospel of David Foster Wallace. And uh, to, this uh, this week is no exception in that I have... Uh, a conversation with David Foster Wallace by Larry McCaffrey um, from the Review of Contemporary Fiction, summer of 1993. So we're kicking it old school today, ladies and gents. Two years before my birth. And uh, what was it? Uh, about half a year after mine. Um, so it, it, this was this was right, or not right after, but this was, uh, I think, two or three years after he published his series of um, uh, short so stories, uh, Girl with Curious Hair. I think three or four years when Infinite Jest came out, but uh, three or four years before Infinite Jest came out. So he's kind of in between things. And, and this is just a, a conversation that has been recorded um, uh, between Larry McCaffrey, whoever that is, and David Foster Wallace, which we all know and love. In this, he is, he, he goes on, as he does, goes on very many uh, tangents and whatnot. But one of his main uh, points is that there is a shift in art 
from presenting the audience with something valuable, something they can kind of carry and take away with them to simply trying to get the audience to like you or think you're clever. And he, I think, not entirely puts the blame on TV and entertainment industry, but he puts a large amount of it on TV. And it's funny because he's constantly providing these clarifications and semi-withdrawals and whatnot, but it says that kind of TV has clued into the fact that the easiest way to appeal to a large market is just to simply, well, as kind of tautological as it is, give them what they want. That's the way they're going to sell the most ads. That's the way they're going to get, you know, get the, the most viewership is just give people what they want. And what people want is just simple entertainment. They don't want to be disturbed. They don't want to wrestle with, with difficult issues. Whereas Dave Foster Wallace, uh, one of the, one of the quotes that he has in this, um, quote, I had a teacher I liked who used to say that good fiction's job was to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. I guess a big part of serious fiction's purpose is to give the reader who like all of us is sort of marooned in her own skull to give her imaginative access to other selves or end quote. And this process of giving imaginative access to other people, to other selves, is a difficult one. Um, it requires pe- it requires us to get out of ourselves, which is pretty. Much, I, w- I would say that's one of his biggest projects throughout his entire career is to get out of, to convince people to get outside of themselves. And he he goes on and, and discusses this uh, and just has a very good way of going about kind of critiquing a lot of what's wrong or what he sees as wrong in the literature industry as well. It, he he pretty much kind of writes TV off. Um, not in an entirely cynical way, but eh, still kind of cynical. Uh, getting into the literature, uh, he has some very good critiques, uh, particularly on this one book, American Psycho. It was a book before it was a movie, which I actually didn't know that. I haven't seen or read either of them. But apparently the author, in essence, wrote this book that was very cynical, very dark, but kind of dark for darkness's sake, to which uh, Dave Foster Wallace Quote, look, man, we've probably most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones. But do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is? In dark times, the definition of good art would seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical that still live and glow despite these times darkness. Really good fiction could have as dark a worldview as it wished, but it would find a way to depict this world and to illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in it. End quote. And this this kind of sets the tone for the rest of the article where he's discussing how a lot of post-modernity comes in and consumes consumes a, a, a culture and kind of plays into its darkness and it kind of starts this uh, progressive cycle. People begin breaking rules of literature of kind of standard form. And at first it seems really cool and kind of edgy, but it then turns into people breaking rules for the rule's sake and kind of showing off and doing that. Quote, when rule breaking, the mere form of renegade avant-gardism becomes an end in itself. You end up with bad language poetry and American psycho's nipple shocks and Alice Cooper eating shit on stage. Shock stops being a byproduct of progress and becomes an end in itself. And it's bullshit. Here's an analogy. The invention of calculus was shocking because for a long time it was simply presumed that you couldn't divide by zero. The integrity of math itself seemed to depend on this presupposition. Then some genius titans came along and said, yeah, maybe you can't divide by zero, but what would happen if you could? We're going to come as close to doing it as we can and see what happens. Uh, later, he says, quote, but if Leibniz and Newton had wanted to divide by zero only to show jaded audience how audiences how cool and rebellious they were, it never would have happened because that kind of motivation doesn't yield results. It's hollow. Dividing as if by zero was titanic and ingenious because it was in the service of something. The math world's shock was a price they had to pay 
not the payoff in itself. Um, and he continues to critique a lot of the both postmodernist project and also I think associated with postmodernism in the literature world is post-structuralism, although that one I very much see to people who know more than I do, in saying that a lot of this kind of shock art and shock literature, it just becomes people showing off for the sake of getting back to the whole they, they show off for the sake of wanting to be liked by their audiences, which is one of the effects TV has had on the audiences consuming both TV, but also more serious pieces of literature and art. He he goes on, on a bit of a side, and I, I really like this uh, particular section. Quote, one thing TV does is help us deny that we're lonely. With televised images, we can have the facsimile of a relationship without the work of a real relationship. It's an anesthesia of form. The interesting thing is why we're so desperate for this anesthetic against loneliness. You don't have to think very hard to realize that our dread of both relationships and loneliness, both of which are like subdreads of our dread of being trapped inside a self, a psychic self, not just a physical self, has to do with the angst about death, the recognition that I'm going to die and die very much alone and the rest of the world is going to go merrily on without me. And I, I think there is something very real with that. I think uh, one of the one of the analogies I heard about um, TV is that TV is to community what uh, masturbation is to sex. And I think there is something very real about that. It allows us to kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we are in community. In fact, I, I would often hear, and I myself have experienced this, people bonding very much with characters that are on TV. And there's, there is something good about that. There, stories can inspire us and can make us want to be more than we are. But when this virtual reality becomes the real, when these fake characters become people that we kind of half imagine to be our actual friends in our actual community, there is something very wrong about that. And he, he goes on a bit more of this, but in his, uh, but he ends up wrapping up with what, uh, again, I think he, there's a lot of little, little gold nuggets, um, little gems of quotes. And uh, he kind of concludes his opinion on the postmodernist project with, uh, this last quote, quote, for me, the last few years of the postmodern era has seemed a bit like the way you feel when you're in high school and your par parents go on a trip and you throw a party. You get all your friends over and throw this wild, disgusting, fabulous party. And for a while, it's great. Free and freeing. Parental authority gone and overthrown. A cat's away. Let's play Dionysian re revel. But then time passes and the party gets louder and louder and you run out of drugs, and nobody's got any money for more drugs, and things get broken and spilled, and there's a cigarette burn on the couch, and you're the host, and it's your house too, and you gradually start wishing your parents would come back and restore some f***ing order in your house. It's not a perfect analogy, but the sense I get of my generation of writers and intellectuals or whatever is that it's 3 a.m., and the couch has, had, has several burn holes, and somebody's thrown up in the umbrella stand, and we're wishing the revel would end. The postmodern founder's patricidal work was great, but patricide produces orphans, and no amount of revelry can make up for the fact that writers my age have been literary orphans throughout our formative years. We're kind of wishing some parents would come back. And of course, we're uneasy about the fact that we wish they'd come back. I mean, what's wrong with us? Are we total pussies? Is there something about authority and limit the limits that we actually need? And then the uneasiest feeling of all, as we start gradually to realize that parents, in fact, aren't ever coming back, which means we're going to have to be the parents. End quote. I think that's a really good way of kind of what the, the feeling I get when I look around and see a lot of the social mores getting eroded kind of for the sake of just eroding them is, man, we, we really are kind of <laughs> we, we've unleashed ourselves and now we have to figure things out on our own. And that's David Foster Wallace. Man, what a guy. That's just a lot. There's a oh, lot sorry. there. Yeah, there is a lot there. I, I even cut some out, stuff out where he actually does get a bit into um, Aristotle and some some 
teleology and whatnot, but I, I figured we we needed a break from Aristotle and teleology, so I just went with uh, his critique of postmodern postmodernism. I, I'm just so impressed. Like that is several thousand words of fairly well worded interview material, and like I am just a I have a hard time believing that people can actually have a conversation of that succinctness and depth. Right. like caliber for that long if that's not heavily edited i am incredibly impressed yeah i i couldn't say uh for or against whether or not that is but yeah i would be very impressed too if that was actual just verbatim maybe cutting out some ums and uhs but if that was actual just david foster wallace kind of coming off the cuff and just spewing out all this yeah i mean he's it, the man is a genius, but even then, that's it's hard to kind of swallow the idea that he was able to come up with all that just off the off the fly. Yeah. So, uh, so my thoughts on this because I read through a good chunk of the first portion and then sort of skipped around. One of the lines uh, was that U.S. viewers' relationship with TV is essentially puerile and dependent, as are all relationships based on seduction. And he just frames TV as, and you said this already, but as as this relationship where art can in different measures, sort of provide pleasure or provide discomfort or pain. And part of the benefit of the pain of it is by empathizing with a character, you gain the idea that someone could empathize with you, which combats solipsism. Um, and it's sort of the project of art and the project of David Foster Wallace, at least as I've understood it, is the the project of combating solipsism. And I think Walker Percy does a lot with this too. Just the the terrifying loneliness of existence and trying to find ways to get out of it for Walker Percy. It's becoming a sovereign wanderer among other things for David Foster Wallace. It's getting outside yourself and being a part of something bigger than yourself. And to that end, I was just only thinking of last night when I was looking through Netflix and trying to find something to watch and, you know, say what you want about TV, but David, but that article or that interview was still written down in the age when sort of primetime TV shows that more or less everybody watched was still a common language, that people could still talk about that. But we've swiftly grown out of that with Netflix and Hulu and um, Apple starting their own thing. Amazon, Disney starting their own thing. And this incredible fragmentation and talking about the, you know, sort of TV's specific desire to give you exactly what you want. And I'm just thinking Netflix algorithms, Hulu algorithms, algorithms, Amazon algorithms, they're not picking shows based on any artistic potential. They're picking shows based on, you know, what X percent of the market can we get hooked on this show and then they'll binge watch it and blah, blah, blah. If like the Netflix originals are insane, they're incredibly specific, incredibly dumb, but they provide a certain something to a very niche audience according to you know, these, these algorithms. So in, if, if David Foster Wallace thought it was bad in 1993, I can only imagine what he would say about Netflix and the collective streaming services in 2019. Where somehow the individualism of TV has become even more individualistic. And to an extent in infinite jest, he does a semi prediction of Netflix. Um, I forget what the exact words for uh, spontaneous dissemination entertainment or something like that, where in essence, people have a, an ordering subscription of whatever they want as fast as I, I think it's not mail delivery. I think it's actual 
Like they just download it and watch it. So he was somewhat predicting Netflix and he was horrified by the idea. Yeah, because Netflix happened and I don't think many of us were horrified by it. Oh, I, I welcomed it with open arms of, ooh, yeah, this is awesome. Do you remember when it was so innocent and you would like, they would like email you DVDs. Email you DVD. You mean sorry, mail sorry, you just DVDs. Mail you. They would just mail you. See, no, I'm a Zoomer. I don't remember what mail is. I only know is what email. email is. I, I, I know paper that's what email. I'm saying. <laughs> what is? Yeah, yeah. They paper email me uh, a DVD. And what's a DVD? I don't know. A disc. It's a, it's a, a record. It's a, it's a it's a new vinyl. It's a copy of of uh, a portion of the internet. I think. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you can only have three at a time. You have to mail them back. You have your queue and all that. I forgot Netflix started on that model. Nice and orderly. They, they still have that, actually. It's uh, Wait, Really? They call why? it DVD.com. Yeah. But why? That's that? a, I mean, no when you idea. have like six trillion DVDs in a warehouse, <laughs> what else are you going to do? Yeah. And people are still subscribing to it. I mean, yeah, like... Have you thought, like, after all of the blockbusters went out of business, where did all of their DVDs go? I, honestly, truth be told, I'm somewhat wondering where all DVDs end up going other than the garbage. Probably the garbage. I would say the garbage or some avant-garde art display in some contemporary That they pulled it out of the garbage. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it, it was important that it went into the garbage first. Yes. So the garbage was one of their displays, and they found a DVD in the garbage, and so kind of in a meta way, the display produced another display. Yeah, well, it, it was actually kind of like a two-pronged thing, because like it was in the garbage, then it got made into a display, and the janitor thought that the display was garbage, because modern art is garbage, yes, and then agreed. they threw it away again, at which point it was resuscitated for a second time. This is Strong like rhetoric. Our, our artistic... Uh... I'm what a reincarnation DVD lives again. DVD lives lives again again in art and in our hearts. You know, what would be really ironic is if the DVD was actually interstellar. Yes. It all comes back to interstellar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not talk about bad art anymore. Let's talk about good art. Part of the, the, the interview. Did you see that, that subtle, uh, insult that interstellar there um i did it wasn't subtle and i saw it i was impressed with david foster wallace's ability to instantly transition from whatever short story writers were famous in 1993 to talking about wittenstein and just giving an instant analysis of his multiple books so obviously a a very well-read person but one thing that i found very interesting i would say in a uplifting way is he gives a, a short list sort of towards the end of the interview talking about what really great fiction writers do. Um, and, and, he, and he mentions uh, Tolstoy, he mentions Flannery O'Connor, he mentions Chekhov. And he says that what they do is they, quote, give the reader something. The reader walks away from the real art heavier than she came into it, end quote. Which I think is significant because there, there is a, a, a lot of art that you consume. And I, I think it's almost a pretty good heuristic do you walk away with anything from the art? Does the art leave anything with you? Because if it doesn't, then it's probably just you know tingling the the happiness sensors that he's so suspicious of. But if it leaves something with you, then maybe not. That's well said. That certainly is a good heuristic. If you walk away wrestling with something, or it, it, it's almost not even a wrestling with, but there are those pieces of art that you walk away from it and you're just quiet and you are mm-hmm. thinking and you you do feel heavier with that. And it's a, it's a very intuitive feel. You can't describe it as, oh, you've been confronted with ideas that you're wrestling with because not all art is even about that, but there's almost a silence that comes with it. That, yeah, you, you, you walk away just 
quiet and uh, there, there is a way. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I just have to go back to what he said. Yeah. There, you, you walk back, walk away heavier. Like, like I, I, I think of the greatest movie of all time. Um, Equilibrium starring Christian Bale. And you, and <laughs> I knew just, you were going to say that. <laughs> and you just and you just walk away with just such an awe of um, the human condition, and mm. um, also Gunkata um, and slicing people's faces uh, off. Katanas. Man. I mean, like, like, like. I forgot about the words, katana part. Oh yeah. Words, words can't express the depth <sighs> and 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 just the utter lack of emotion on Christian Bale's face is really. <laughs> The emotion no, no, no. of the world. He, of he has two emotions. The universe itself. He no. He he is not our lack of emotion. There are two emotions. There is constipation. Lack of emotion. Which <laughs> is slightly yes, yes that lack and, of emotion and, uh, and constipation. No, 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 no. no. It's the, it's the lack of no, no, no. It's the lack of emotion and kind of like digestive stress that's just kind of constant. And then there's <laughs> utter surprise and shock. And. <laughs> And isn't that just a beautiful summary of the human experience? Um, so now to quickly move on to my own article before anyone has time to contradict me. Uh, my article wow. is from the sh- shut up is from the Atlantic, and it is uh, why Trump wants to go to the moon so badly. And it's more or less a news article. I don't have a whole lot of uh, nice social commentary here, but it's it's basically just looking at a speech that Pence made a week ago, less than a week ago, talking about how the United States' policy is now to put more humans on the moon by 2024, um, assuming re-election, obviously. I can't imagine that will stick around if a Democrat is elected. Talks about just, you know, sort of the project, and they want to put people on the moon, and they're tired of relying on Russian rockets, and, you know, it'll be a great technical achievement, and you make the moon great again, blah, 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 blah. There is one really good quote from the article, um, which is uh, the following uh, quote. A few months after that, Trump reportedly asked the acting administrator of NASA whether the agency could send people to Mars in the next few years, a feat that would require buckets of money and probably defy the laws of physics. This is a quote from Trump. But is there... Uh, let me try and do a Trump voice. This, this is not going to be good, but I'll... I'll, I'll try. But is there any way that we could do it by the end of my first term? Trump asked. Okay, but what if I gave you all the money you could ever need to do it? What if we sent NASA's budget to the roof, but focused entirely on that instead of whatever else you're doing now? Could it work then? I love the whatever else you're doing now. Like Whatever you nerds are working on, put it aside. It's it gets like, the moon. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're like an astrophysicist. You're the director of NASA, and like Trump calls you into his office, and it's like, hey, uh... Um, so can we put people on on Mars? And uh, you're like, uh, no, uh, we have not. No, we do, we do not have that technology. And then Tim's like, okay, but what if you stop doing whatever you're doing now and instead went to Mars? Um, <laughs> could could you do it? <laughs> could you do it? Um, so so I don't have a whole lot of commentary on this except for the um, following four points. Uh, point number one: uh, Space Force. Self-explanatory. Point number two, there was something very good about man aiming for the stars, sort of like, you know, the common project to aim at, civic pride, you know, the free world aiming for space, making space American, blah, 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 blah. That's great. I don't know if it... Oh, just I, I would like to add a footnote. Man aiming for the stars. Well, we were also trying to beat the Russians who were trying to beat us, and we were also incidentally about to nuke each other out of existence. So, yeah. <laughs> Red moon. Yeah, and, and, wow. and the Russians got a little bit nervous when they learned that we could send 
a nuke around the moon, it would do a loop-de-loop and then hit them. That made it extra scary. Mm-hmm. Wait, that's a real thing? Well, like, that was the whole, na- the whole Apollo project was just proving how powerful our rockets were. And That's so, amazing. Like, I didn't the know The fact that. that we could do that, I mean, that makes the nuke a lot scarier when you can see it coming from the moon at you. That's a simple fact right there. Also, need we bring up the Nazi moon base? Need we bring that up? What? No, that's top secret. No one can know about that. Oh, okay. Cut that out. Cut that out. Um, Yeah, we'll 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 bleep that in 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 post. Um, So (laughs) that that was all the previous project. I don't know how relevant that is today, given sort of lack of collective American pride. I'm highly doubtful that a sending people to the moon again would unify Republicans and Democrats. That does not seem like a um, thing likely to succeed, but whatever. And also there aren't Soviets anymore. I mean, basically now we're racing China, but they're not dramatic enough to really make this um, interesting. They're not going to go to the moon. They're just going to beat us in all the other ways. So yeah. while we waste money on going to Mars. Third comment, we're on the third comment now, um, is, is just the idea of putting humans and trying to make them sustainable on more than one planet or object in space would be great. Uh, I just liked how the Atlantic article sort of reflecting a little bit of the concern that it had early on talking about like, well, most of NASA's project is working on climate change. And most of Americans think it should be working on climate change. And there's just like repeated things that pop up in the article about like, yeah, well, humanity has a better chance of surviving in general, if we have people on multiple planets and whatever. It's like, lol, that's funny. And is it wrong? No, no, no. It's absolutely absolutely right. right. I, 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 for one, welcome the day when Earth nukes itself to death and the Mars Empire is the flag bearer of uh, human civilization to the stars. My fourth point is that of space economics. And I only bring this up, and the reason I chose this article was because I listened to an interesting podcast with, with very socialist folks. I, I, I think the podcast was called the Antifada, as in a combination of the uh, Intifada or whatever Hamas or whatever shoots rockets at israel and uh, antifa and it's like not ironic was was interviewing the a sci-fi author the author of the red mars trilogy which looks at the colonization of mars in great detail and like uh, terraforming and imagining economics post-capitalism in a space setting which is interesting and it sounds like it kind of ends up they they steal from the mondragon organization which interestingly enough is the one that distributists hold up when they talk about alternatives to capitalism and socialism, both. And just, yeah, what would space economics look like in, uh, w- if, if you have a moon base and a Mars base and whatever else base? I don't know. But the fifth point is the same as the first point, and that is uh, uh, Space Force. Self-explanatory. Now, just, just from like a hypothetical situation, if... You know, Trump gets his way, and we we colonize the moon, and then from there, you know, there's colonies on Mars. Do you think those colonies would be sovereign countries, or would they break off and form their own sovereign countries? Like, I mean, for economics to work, we would have to it would have to be between different actors. Mm-hmm. Well, this is part of the space economics thing. So, mm-hmm. like, if if you have a sort of UN centric view where like the UN and the human race as a whole is funding the Mars project or whatever. That's one path. Another path is you have individual nations, probably unlikely just given it's prohibitively expensive. And then you could have, you know, like US Mars versus China Mars. That would be hilarious. The third possibility is giant corporations and, you know, uh, vying for control of space. And then you have Elon Musk Mars versus who's another billionaire? George Soros Mars. I don't know. Or Um, ex uh, Paul Allen Mars. Paul Paul Allen Mars. The the late Paul Allen Mars. The late Paul Allen Mars and 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 Exxon Mobil Mars, yes. like 
you know, there are all sorts of possibilities here that we just have no idea. But it seems like, given current uh, current trends, that space exploration is tending towards private actors. In which case, sort of corporation wars in space is probably the best outcome. And all I can really think of is the potential benefits for like streaming. Like, can you like streaming on Twitch, like a giant space battle in between like the Exxon Mobil fleet and the Paul Allen brigade? Like, that would be epic. <laughs> Do you think they stream on Twitch? Yeah. Not like well, does Twitch have news? their own no, does Twitch have their own space force? Because if they do Well, they Twitch is owned have... by Amazon. So Amazon would actually sort of undermine everyone by doing like a neutral arbiter, but they would actually be colonizing underneath the ice cap in yeah. on on Mars. Um I and then put their server farm somewhere. Uh, on the moons of Mars and then unleashing the uh army prime upon um <laughs> the unsuspecting in two hours or less <laughs> <laughs> defeat guaranteed in two hours or less oh man prime now more like prime nuke <laughs> mm. well anyway evil world we live in anyway any more thoughts on uh, on space force i am curious have you uh, ever read uh click holes speech president nixon would have given if the astronauts had exploded what i feel like i have it's yes. beautiful, it's gorgeous, and one of my friends had one of their groomsmen read it at their uh, wedding. And Do you want to read at their wedding? Do you want to read a, f- a few lines right now? Oh, I can I can read you a few lines. I will say my, my priest, who is one of the most somber, solemn people I've mm-hmm. met, was crying. But I'm not sure if he was crying, but he was bent over laughing. It was <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. So here, uh, I'll, I'll try to... It's pretty short. I'm just going to read it because you need the full thing. You need the full thing. Okay, so here we go. And you can always cut it out if it's too long. My fellow Americans, good evening. The astronauts have exploded. Hello, my name is President Richard Nixon. The crew members of Apollo 11 spacecraft, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, Neil Buzz Armstrong, and Michael Buzz Cullen, have <laughs> <laughs> become dead in space. Something went wacko with the machines. And like many great men before them, Buzz and his husbands exploded. <laughs> Note, hold for applause. (laughs) While the loss of these brave men is tragic, we should not weep for them, for they understood the risks of a lunar mission. They knew that space was an area where things go wacko with the machines. We made it clear that if they... (laughs) That if they exploded in space, there was very little hope of putting them back together. I'm sure as their spaceship was erupting into a flaming chamber of death all around them, the astronauts were thinking, this makes a lot of sense. (laughs) We can take comfort in that. Buzz and his husbands did not jump into space because they knew they would succeed. No, they went to space because mankind has an unquenchable thirst for strange new rocks. The moon is brimming with weird stones and boulders, and we want them. Mankind wants baffling rocks, and even these men, though these men exploded, we are going to send more men to get these rocks. I knew these men, and I knew their bravery and courage. On the night before the Apollo 11 spacecraft was launched into space by unknown forces, I came into Neil Armstrong's bedroom and woke him up. I said to him, Neil, are you scared that you will die in space? And Neil Armstrong said to me, Mr. President, I am worried about dying in space, but my irrational lust for bizarre faraway rocks is stronger than my fear of exploding. (laughs) And I took Neil Armstrong's hand into my much larger hand and said to him, Neil, I want you to bring me back some cold rocks from the moon. 
because I want to have them in my house and I want to warm up the rocks with a hairdryer and have them be warm. And Neil Armstrong's dead. I'll either do that or I'll explode and I don't care which one happens. Then Neil Armstrong got out of the bed, walked out of his own bedroom, and left his house, leaving me alone in the dark. I knew Buzz Aldrin, too. He was brave and noisy. He would often boast that when he got to the moon, he would jam a Japanese flag into the soil, quote, just to make NASA shriek and holler, end quote. I often told him, Buzz, do not cram a flag of Japan into the soil of the moon. Do that with the American flag instead. And Buzz would say, with all due respect, Mr. President, you. I'm going to find <laughs> Japanese flags. I might actually find a bleep thing. I wasn't planning on bleeping anything, but now I'm <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm going to bring nine Japanese flags to cover the surface of the moon in Japanese flags, and when the aliens see the moon through their binoculars, they will say, I guess that thing belongs to Japan. Buzz was a great man. The less that is said about Michael Cullen, the better. And so it is with a heavy heart that we bid farewell to Buzz and his magnificent husbands. They were as noble as they are dead. They've exploded all the way. And for that, we salute them. We've got to get our hand on those weird rocks from the moon. I want to taste the boulders of the moon. I think they will taste like yarn. We're going to send a whole new batch of space divers up to the moon tomorrow so that they can get the space rocks for me. Okay, President Nixon is going back to sleep now. I love you, America. Good night, my country. I'll see you next week. Wow. That was pretty good. That, that was, was read really in good. deadpan seriousness before an audience of 200 plus. And at we were all, yep, at a wedding. And we were all dying of laughter. What That's was hilarious. the meaning at the wedding? Uh, they were just both, big fans of President Nixon. Yeah, both, both <laughs> of them thought the article was hilarious. And uh, the groomsman does, does a really good Nixon impression. And oh, well, no, that, it wasn't that, even no, Nixon. You, you don't know, like, see that anymore. He just did a really good reading of Nixon? it. And yeah, no, this was what what would happen if Nixon. Uh, yep, exactly. Uh, yeah, it was what the speech Nixon would have delivered had. And I think the original story is like there is an actual speech. He did write up one in case the astronauts exploded in space. Things go wackle with the machines, apparently. Well, I don't think we can top that. Uh, so, um, for everyone here at uh, Space Force, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And I'm very late in saying my name. And we will see you next time. Have a good week. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Space Force. Yeah, I, I think that we can do like... I mean, I like McIntyre. I like books, but we could, you know, do chapter, do chapters of books, or do summaries of books mm-hmm. instead of like really in depth reading. Yep. Because that's just I the agree. problem with reading is that it takes too much time and it makes us think too much, too complicated of thoughts. I kind of want to make the title now. Let me see. The problem with reading is that it takes too much time and makes us think too much. <laughs>